One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Timeline Tapes. I'm Nate, and I'm part of the team behind Timeline, the home of world history documentaries on YouTube. This show came about when we realized that we could turn some of our documentaries into podcasts so that people could listen on the go and not miss out when they don't have time to watch the whole thing. Last week, we began the journey of rediscovering Herculaneum, the sister town of Pompeii, which you've probably heard of. You can find the first part of this episode in our feed, but this time, we're starting off with some ancient artifacts from 79 AD. One of the most fascinating things about Herculaneum is to try and guess what still lies underneath. We know that there are major public buildings that haven't been discovered yet that ought to be there. And are there libraries? Are there other baths that won't have been robbed by the Bourbons, that won't have been stripped of all their accoutrements? Things that can tell us a lot about the daily processes of life within the city. The Bourbons' ruthless pursuit of Roman art led to spectacular findings, but they largely disregarded the culture and environment in which the stunning objects were created. The people who first explored Pompeii and Herculaneum didn't obviously have the values that we would have today if we were exploring the cities, but for their time, they were interested in the art. They weren't really interested in the context, so by today's standards, they were not archeologists. But the Bourbons didn't take everything. Today's archaeologists regularly make extraordinary finds. Just recently, this rare painted head was discovered near the basilica. Today, it's being conserved by Dr. Monica Castaldi. I received a telephone call saying a painted head was found. And I just said, please keep it wet as much as you can, put it into a plastic bag, don't let it dry. Objects are used to be in wet climate, and then they dry too quickly and they can disintegrate. The paint layer could have been damaged. What's so important about it is that Monica was there for it, to have a conservator actually involved in the archaeology. So many heads must have been found in the past with paint 
but was simply washed away. And that means that we have a fantastic insight into the big mystery of what a coloured statue head was like. You can see how wonderfully delicate the paintwork is. And you see how it concentrates around the area of the eye. It brings it to life, because for the ancients, the life resides in the eye. You can see into the soul through the eye. The head is believed to be of an Amazon warrior woman, a popular mythical figure of the time. It probably came from the basilica where many such statues would have stood. Studying Herculaneum's spectacular art in context enables Andrew and the team to fully appreciate the colorful world the Romans inhabited. In Herculaneum, they have a unique opportunity to build a complete picture of a living, breathing town. What makes Herculaneum very special and unlike Pompeii is that organic material is preserved and that everything is preserved to a greater height. And that means you get wooden structures, you get, uh, you get food, you get cloth, you get cupboards, and you also get upper floors. Over the last two millennia, while other Roman towns were sacked by invaders, Herculaneum's streets and infrastructure were preserved under 80 feet of volcanic debris, giving a rare glimpse of the scale of Roman building. But it's the 2,000-year survival of delicate household objects that gives Herculaneum its sense of unique preservation and connects us to daily life in the Roman world. One of the most unusual things about Herculaneum in particular is the preservation of so much wood. And wood survives in archaeology only for three main reasons. It's been burnt, carbonized. It's been waterlogged. Um, for example, upon Hadrian's Wall, you find waterlogged deposits. Or it's been dried out, as you might find, say, in the desert in Egypt. But at Herculaneum, because the pyroclastic flows scorched everything, you have staircases, ceilings, shelves, furniture. Hidden from public view lie some of the most fragile and revealing discoveries. In here, we have one of the most extraordinary features of the site. We have the carbonized wooden furniture. And you see rows and rows of this furniture. Here, for instance, you've got a bed, and you can see the, the wooden frame of the bed, but also all around it, this beautiful edging work in marquetry. It's preserved like this because of the unique way that the site is destroyed. An avalanche of, of hyperheated pyroclastic flow coming down turns the wood, instantly cooks it at a, this very high temperature. And you can see over here that how black this chest is. Uh, you can see the cracks running on it. All the, the vapour has been driven off and the wood has turned into carbon. And like that, it can survive. Most of the furniture is carbonised like that. Every now and again, very, very rarely, you get real wood, non-carbonised wood. And this is the... Uh, a little door from a cupboard or something, and you can see these, these beautiful details of, of woodwork around it. And this must have been hit by a pyroclastic flow at much lower temperature. And it's not just wood. All sorts of organic materials survive. Here, for instance, you, you have a wicker basket 
perhaps for fishing, we don't know quite, know quite what. And here, one of the really astonishing finds from the site, a Roman loaf. A Roman loaf divided it in, into its little slices of bread, which actually has the name of the guy who was going to consume it stamped on it. You can see uh, an A or a V and an M there. And what you did was you put your name on so you get the right loaf back out of the oven. That a loaf of bread can survive 2,000 years is extraordinary enough, but in subterranean Herculaneum, even more basic details of daily life have been preserved. This is the ancient sewer, which ran beneath most of the houses. Here, Professor Mark Robinson has found shards of pots and kitchen waste that show that this was also used for general garbage disposal. It's quite a usual practice for the Roman latrines to be in the kitchen. You could do your washing up, you could throw your kitchen waste around the, uh, down the toilet shaft, which is much more of a, a, a waste disposal shaft rather than just, just a latrine shaft. Hidden in the dirt is evidence that offers a rare glimpse of Roman diet and may even show what some citizens had been eating in Herculaneum's final hours. The first item here is a partly mineralized cherry stone, then onto an apple pip. These, these things are a group of mineralized grape pips, and finally, large numbers of fig seeds were present in the samples. Some of this material could well be from some of the last meals eaten at Herculaneum because the deposits that have been sampled are the uppermost layers of the excrement material in the sewer. The water that drained into the sewers had reached it via another feat of technology. Roman engineering was highly developed by 79 AD. A few miles northwest of Herculaneum, in the modern city of Naples, an aqueduct still spans a busy street. The Aqua Augusta provided water for all the towns around Vesuvius. The Romans developed a whole science, if you like, of aqueduct technology that's controlling the gradient, controlling water pressure, providing reliable masonry structures that would carry the water from the source and track it all the way down to where it was needed. The most familiar impression of a Roman aqueduct today is a whole series of arches in an arcade carrying the water along the top. Actually, that's something that the Romans only usually employed to carry water across lower areas like valleys. Most aqueducts were actually channels buried into the ground, underground channels. From the channels, the water was filtered and divided at water plants on the edge of each town in the region. Here, the water was divided into three, one channel supplied the public baths, another fed the private houses of the rich, and a third supplied the public fountains that everyone could use. The dividing tower was built on the highest point of the town to control pressure. If the pressure got too great, the water was forced up pipes to the top of towers at street corners, where there was another water tank. This reduced the pressure and produced a steady local head of water, which then ran down lead pipes into street fountains. The system was called constant offtake. It flowed the whole time. So you have to imagine a town where 
The public taps are really never turned off. There is water flowing through it the whole time. Providing water for their populations was one of the greatest benefits of being part of the Roman world. There's no doubt about that. And it's a kind of a tragedy that so much of that fell apart after the end of the Roman Empire. It took until the 19th century, really, before people learned again the value of providing a reliable public freshwater supply. The Romans had brought one of the most advanced civilizations the world had ever seen to the slopes of Vesuvius. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We're almost at the end of our journey to discover what exactly happened to the people of Herculaneum. By its final period, Herculaneum was a, a wonderful place to live. There was peace and prosperity on the Bay of Naples, and th there were glorious houses looking out over the bay, and life must have been very good. This was the life destroyed over a few deadly hours in 79 AD. But what really happened to the people of the deserted city? It was only 20 years ago that the horrifying truth finally began to emerge, a discovery that has reshaped our entire understanding of how Herculaneum and its people met their end. For a long time, it was thought that everyone must have escaped from Herculaneum. Only a few dozen skeletons were found. And it wasn't until they started going right down to the level of the ancient sea that a series of arches produced the most dramatic evidence of what happened to the inhabitants of Herculaneum. Dozens of bodies lying huddled for protection in these arcades. 
These fragile bones were one of the archaeological finds of the century. Studying the skeletons, bioanthropologist Pierpaolo Petroni searches for details of the inhabitants' final terrifying moments. Dr. Petroni believes the skeletons show signs of a violent reflex reaction to intense heat, contorting the bodies in a thermal-induced contraction. Here we have uh, a good example of a contracted hand. In fact, all the hands and feet of these people underwent thermal-induced contraction induced by the direct effect of the heat on the skin receptors. So just in one second, we, they got this kind of contraction of upper and lower limbs. In this case, an hand, and here we have a cast of the foot contracted. It's very evident of here the contraction of tooth. A natural and a normal position of living person. The people in the boat sheds didn't know what hit them. The latest scientific work has shown exactly how people died. The skeletons show signs of thermal shock, a wave of very hot gas, a 400, 500 degrees centigrade, hit them and makes their flesh evaporate and they die instantly. It's become clear that anyone who hadn't escaped Herculaneum by midnight was vaporized by the first superheated pyroclastic flow that surged down Vesuvius. Pyroclastic flows vary in temperature. You can have cold flows and you can have supercharged, exceptionally hot flows. Now you imagine it, you're not entirely sure how you would die in one of these things. If it's cold, you'd suffocate because it's very fluid, the ash gets into your throat and it, yeah, effectively you drowned or if they're very, very hot, you become incinerated in the blink of an eye. From the skeletons, Dr. Petroni believes he can tell how hot the killer flow was. In this case, we have blackening of the inner part and some very clear fractures, which show that the temperatures of exposure were about four, 500 degrees in this case. The intense heat caused brains to boil and skulls to explode. So the first effect of the heat was the contraction of hands and feet because it took just one second. And then later we have the effects on the bones, on teeth, on the skulls, explosion of skulls, and fractures of the lung bones of teeth, and then rapid vaporization. So all the effects are very sudden, but after the death of the people. So the people didn't feel anything. Hot ash immediately entombed the people, keeping their skeletons intact. Here, a child looks as if it's being comforted by its mother. The tiny bones of a fetus found beneath the woman indicate she was seven months pregnant. 
It's thought the people of Herculaneum fled to the sheds by the sea to seek rescue by boat. If there was an attempt to completely evacuate the town, it failed. It's clear that they had taken refuge at the very last moment, and they've probably got about 10 minutes when the flow starts coming down the mountainside. And the best place to take refuge was right down by the shore, underneath these great massive concrete vaults. They would have given very good protection or protection against anything except a pyroclastic flow. Though we've already discovered about 300 skeletons, there must be more. Andrew and the team will probably never know how many more mothers and children still lie buried. But they now know that Herculaneum suffered a human catastrophe just as tragic as Pompeii. It's impossible to look at the tragedy of Herculaneum without being moved to look at their awful skeletons and to think of their awful death. The irony of working in, in Herculaneum is that other people's tragedy is our good luck. Their destruction is also their survival. So you can't just be upset by their horrible end because it gives us a fabulous chance to study them. Studying the secrets of Herculaneum's dead gives Andrew and the team fresh insight into an old problem the perils of living in reach of a volcano. Today on the Bay of Naples, the threat from Vesuvius is just as acute as it was in 79 AD. Volcanologist Dr. Giuseppe Mastro Lorenzo works with the team and looks for precursors of trouble on the volcano, signs that it might be about to erupt again. Precursors normally last for weeks to months, and precursors include uh, uh, earthquakes, which are indicators of something uh, happening uh, uh, beneath the volcano. Unlike in 79 AD, today the Italian authorities monitor Vesuvius around the clock. Dr. Giovanni Macedonio is the director of the Vesuvian Observatory. There was an earthquake uh, about at uh, 2 o'clock uh, this morning. This is a very small earthquake. And here we record about, uh, let's say, 100 or 200 earthquakes of this kind during uh, one uh, per year. So this is a normal activity of the volcano. And uh, until this is the the activity, we are sure that there is nothing that uh, shows us that Vesuvius is going to erupt. Of course, if we, if we see an increase in seismicity, if uh, there are many earthquakes uh, in one day, of course, uh, this uh, means that the volcano is changing uh, its activity and is going to, to, towards a crisis. Officially, the authorities do not expect a large eruption anytime soon, and they think they will get at least two weeks' warning when it does come. But Dr. Mastro Lorenzo thinks Vesuvius might surprise them. I don't know when Vesuvius will erupt again. I just know that a volcano like this may change from this state to the critical conditions. 
in a few days. The authorities do have a plan to evacuate 600,000 people before the next eruption, but it might be too little, too late. The present evacuation plan has been based on a minor eruption like the one occurred in 1631, which is not so big uh, like the, the 79 AD eruption. I don't know if the people really think an eruption like that may occur in the course of their life, but uh, it could. The evacuation plan looks inadequate when compared to worst-case scenarios based on more ancient eruption. In terms of AD 79 eruption, is that the worst you could get from Vesuvius? Probably not. Probably not. When you look at the record, the rock record, and you go back through time, geological time, you see many different large-scale eruptions, some of them bigger than the AD 79 eruption. Only 4,000 years ago, Vesuvius erupted so violently, it wiped out most of the Bay of Naples. Today, this area has over 6 million residents. Most of them don't have an evacuation plan. The modern population, like their ancestors in ancient Herculaneum, are living on a time bomb. What makes a volcano extremely dangerous is not its style of activity, it's the amount of people that live at the foothills. And of course, with Vesuvius, you've got several million people right there in Naples itself. And the question becomes, how fast can you evacuate those people when the volcano starts to escalate? Despite all the planning, today's citizens may be no more prepared to deal with an eruption than their ancient ancestors. People have been building right under Vesuvius, right through history. Not just the Romans, but millennia before we know that humans have lived here. Vesuvius only erupts very rarely, and people just can't remember the last time it erupted. Among the secrets of Herculaneum's dead is a warning for the millions still living in the volcano's shadow. Escaping an eruption is the only sure way to survive. But any last-minute attempt to evacuate will be fraught with difficulty. Even on normal days, the roads are jammed. It's difficult to imagine, but one day, all of this could be buried by Vesuvius. The lessons from the lost city of Herculaneum are too terrifying to ignore. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. This wraps up our two-part Vesuvius episode. We'll have a new episode out next week, but if you can't wait and want to see more, you can head to our YouTube channel, where you can find countless world history documentaries. If you want to contact Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to, give us a five-star rating and write a review as well. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcaster, forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.